0: Welcome to $100 Plus Mileage, the podcast about those New Hampshire bills that don't necessarily make the news, but could still impact you. So how often you have to get your car inspected, or whether your bottled water is tested for PFAS, or if your neighbor can start a collection of broken washing machines in their backyard. There are close to 1,000 bills in the New Hampshire legislature this year, and every one of those bills gets a public hearing. Meanwhile, our legislators are paid just $100 plus mileage which means they're not full-time political scientists. New Hampshire's government is open for you to participate. On this podcast, we highlight some of the lesser-known New Hampshire bills, give you the unbiased facts, pros and cons, and highlight opportunities for you to get involved. I'm Mike Dunbar, content editor for Citizens Count.
1: I'm Anna Brown, director of research and analysis for Citizens Count. By the way, those little, those little examples you get all have been New Hampshire bills oh, yeah. in the past in one way or another. Um, although the bill with the broken washing machines, that's more about, you know, people having derelict properties, basically, and what you do about that, but, uh, did not specifically mention washing machines, but you never know. You never know. There are crazy people out there who do really, really weird things with, (laughs) with their property. So, uh, but we're touching on a more serious topic today, gun control, or as the case may be, gun rights.
0: Yeah, I think I'd call this one a gun rights bill. So this is HB 195. And it would uh, shield displaying a firearm from the state's reckless conduct law.
1: And we're not talking displaying like hanging over a mantle.
0: Right. This is not like your, your blunderbuss hanging next to a moose head. This is <laughs> uh, displaying in open carrying or holding in your hand, that kind of thing.
1: Okay. So before we get specific about HB 195, let's talk about the law against reckless conduct. Reckless conduct is defined as behavior that places another person in danger of serious bodily injury.
0: Right, exactly. So, for example, leaving drugs unattended around your children, uh, firing a gun through a wall while you're trying to clean it, firing warning shots into the air, speeding in a car towards pedestrians, et cetera, all,
1: et cetera. Yeah, all of those I know, from based on some researching we did, are have resulted in reckless conduct charges in New mm-hmm. Hampshire. And by the way, the leaving the drugs, we're not talking like... Tylenol. We're talking, obviously, you know, hard drugs, illegal drugs. So and so after Googling reckless conduct in New Hampshire, I'd like to interrupt this broadcast for a brief public service announcement. Don't point a gun at something unless you intend to shoot it. This public service announcement was brought to you by my father, Ray Brown. He taught (laughs) me firearm safety when I was in high school. What's up, Dad?
0: Well, okay. so speaking of firearms, they have a special place in the state's reckless conduct law. Uh, reckless conduct is a misdemeanor in New Hampshire unless a person uses a deadly weapon like a gun, and that would make it a felony.
1: So I read a little bit about this as well because it's interesting that there's that carve-out, and that was only added in the 1990s. There's a union leader story from 1994 that quotes Assistant Attorney General William H. Lyons saying, there have been too many officers who have found themselves in the middle of certain situations and someone waves a gun. Too many people have come close to being shot by the officer as a result of that. It's a dangerous situation, and when it comes time for charges to be filed, the officers find that it's only a misdemeanor. So the legislator upped the penalty for reckless conduct with a firearm to a felony.
0: Right, right. So going back to HB 195, that bill would add a line to the reckless conduct law that says displaying a firearm shall not constitute reckless conduct. The bill doesn't define display, but it's uh, it's certainly different from words like brandishing or verbs that are used elsewhere in the state law.
1: Right, so according to the bill sponsor, HB 195 would protect someone who carries a firearm and draws attention to it, but not necessarily someone who points a firearm at someone or is waving it around with a finger on the trigger. And so the example he gave is a homeowner who hears a disturbance outside and leaves his house with a gun in his hand.
0: Is that something that happens? Do people actually get charged for stepping out on their front porch with a, a rifle?
1: Okay, so so there was some debate about this at the bill hearing. And the sponsor said a man in Manchester was arrested when he left his house with a gun. His wife was getting home from a late shift. He heard something that got his hackles up. But I couldn't find any news coverage of that. And the details at the hearing weren't clear. Of course, there's also the whole somewhat related ward bird debate. But we'll save that for the end. Spoiler alert, there's a twist with animal hoarding.
0: Hmm. All right. Based on some news searches in the bill hearing, we're not aware that there's a widespread problem of people getting arrested because they are showing a firearm without shooting it. But supporters of HB 195 still argue gun owners should not fear a reckless conduct charge just for showing that they possess a weapon and could protect themselves during a the confrontation.
1: Yeah, well, the House Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee was debating the bill. Supporters argued that some people are intimidated by others carrying firearms, but that doesn't mean holding or carrying a firearm should be considered dangerous and reckless.
0: Right. A frequent argument was that people showing firearms actually de-escalates potentially violent or criminal situations because it warns people off. You know.
1: So the, yeah, I mean that's an echo of debate over whether teachers should be allowed to carry firearms on school grounds or for that matter, any argument about the public carrying mm-hmm. firearms. It's, its you know, do guns make people more safe or less safe?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And people against the bill argue that HB 195 could potentially empower gun owners to non-verbally threaten or terrorize people with their guns.
1: Man, there were so many hypothetical situations that lawmakers were talking about during these hearings. So like, what if a passenger in a road rage incident shows a gun through the window? Is is that displaying? Should that be protected or not? And then what if an abusive partner places a firearm on the table during an otherwise casual conversation? You know, is that going to Maybe that would fall under other domestic violence laws if it was a pattern of behavior or, or maybe not. Maybe Would that law protect this? Is that bad? And then what if you just bump into someone in the grocery store and they put the hand on their holstered gun? You know, wh- wh- where is that line when someone recklessly puts someone else in danger? And it really would depend on the specific facts of a case.
0: I feel like there must be more road rage in New Hampshire than I realize. It seems like we're talking about road rage a lot this year. <laughs>
1: Can I, it does seem to come up a lot. It really does. That's a good point. I want I want to see some road rage
0: statistics now. Exactly. Opponents of HB195 argue that the verb displaying is too vague. It, is it displaying if I'm walking around with a pistol in a holster? Uh, what about if I take it out of the holster? What if I conceal carry and then I take it out? What if I'm pointing at the ground but my finger's on the trigger?
1: Yeah, and and so there's another nuance we need to consider because the state has a separate law against criminal threatening. So we're talking about reckless conduct, but right after that in state law comes criminal threatening. And supporters of the bill point out that if you point a gun at someone and it's not in self-defense, that could still be charged as criminal threatening.
0: All right, I'm sensing that ward Bird tie-in approaching.
1: You are correct. Okay, for people who don't know, let me run it back and tell the story of ward Bird. Back in 2006, Ward Bird owned rural property in Moultonboro, New Hampshire. A woman was looking to buy property nearby, and she drove onto Ward Bird's property. He left the house with a firearm in the back of his pants to see what was going on. Then we get two versions of what happened. According to Ward Bird, the woman drove past multiple no trespassing signs. She wouldn't leave his property when he told her she was in the wrong place, he says she swore at him. He swore back. She got in her car. He turned around to go back in his house, took the gun out of the back of his pants, and then he removed the clip and checked to make sure there wasn't a round in the chamber, which is, you know, like clearing it. You know, you making it sure, sure it's not going to go off accidentally through a wall anyway. And then he went back inside. Christine Harris, the woman, tells a totally different story. She said Ward came out waving the gun, screaming at her, launched himself from the porch, and threatened her. And after she left his house, she reported this to the police. Ward Bird was convicted of criminal threatening. But if you go back and read the details of the case, it's kind of interesting because he never took the stand. His lawyer talked about it and said, I don't know. We cross-examined Christine Harris. He thought it was all set. Ultimately, Ward Bird went to the executive council and asked for a pardon. Ultimately, his student's sentence was commuted. So I think he served, it was something like a little over two months in jail or something because, of course felony threatening when it's with a firearm. So when the case hit the news, it got a huge amount of attention. And a lot of people who you might call like live for your die folks <laughs> argued that Byrd was defending his property and he did nothing wrong. And it actually prompted a change in the law, in the legislature. So they revised the criminal threatening statute to say the following, a person who responds to a threat which could be considered by a reasonable person as likely to cause serious bodily injury or death to the person or to another by displaying a firearm or other means of self-defense with the intent to warn away the person making the threat, shall not have committed a criminal act under this section. Which is a whole lot of legal language with many, uh, those are conjunctions, I think, or (laughs) prepositions Um, at any rate. The, the law, what it does, it says you can display a firearm to warn another away a person who is threatening you with injury or death. So, you know, HB 195 is different because it would address situations where there is not necessarily a clear threat that you're about to get injured or killed.
0: I like that uh, phrase, uh, considered by a reasonable person. That seems like it could be a contentious uh phrase in that.
1: I mean, the the law is interesting, man. And it goes back to how it's the particularities of each case. You know, it's really right. hard to generalize what would happen.
0: Right. So bill opponents argue that HB 195 goes a step too far because it takes away that necessary self-defense aspect.
1: Yeah. But the argument about criminal threatening goes both ways because supporters of HB 195 Argued that displaying is different than threatening. And so, if someone doesn't just show a gun, they actually pointed at someone, they could still be charged with criminal threatening.
0: Right. Okay. Hold up. I was promised a twist related to animal hoarding in this. And I was like, yes.
1: Think yes. Because you know, I love to just go down strange twists <laughs> and turns. I feel like there's part of me that just wants to host a true crime podcast. Mm-hmm. And so, the Ward case, Bird case is full of these strange twists and turns. First of all, Ward Bird was in the middle of a long property-related dispute with family members, and he got in the habit of carrying a gun after an incident a few years back where he says his brother-in-law shot at him. Hmm. And Christine Harris was actually looking for this disputed family property. Um, She had dreams of opening some kind of animal sanctuary. Here it comes. The plot twist. A couple years after Ward Bird, the whole thing happened, Harris was convicted of animal cruelty because she was keeping more than 40 dogs in a condemned trailer home with no heat or electricity. So that's part of the reason why the executive council was sympathetic to Ward Bird. They weren't so sure Christine Harris was a reliable witness in light of her later criminal
0: conviction. (laughs) Carol Baskin.
1: (coughs) (laughs) I mean, it definitely just goes to show that, like what we we were talking about, like, oh, it's the particularities of the case. But like when you look back at that, you're like, oh, my gosh, so much is going on. Like, is Christine Harris reliable? What was going on with Ward Bird and this property and his relatives? Like, it's basically they those two definitely had an encounter in his driveway. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, no shots were fired. No shots were fired. But yeah. Carol Baskin. Oh, man.
0: Amazing. So, I wonder if that happened today, if that whole incident happened today, if he would still be convicted, especially if HB 195 passed.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, another hypothetical. So he was originally charged with criminal threatening, and the self-defense exception in that law only works if you can prove a reasonable person would have expected Christine Harris was about to cause injury or death. Mm -hmm. I don't don't know about that. Um, If he was charged with reckless conduct and HB 195 passed, like we're talking about, I think it would get into this sticky area of what is displaying a firearm versus what is threatening someone. Um, and, you know, I think he would, you know, you would, I think the the bill, people who wrote this bill, the people who support it, I think would say, you know, okay, if, if you have it in the back of your pants and then you remove it and you are, take, you are taking out the bullets, right? You remove the magazine, you clear it, make sure the chamber's clear. Like they would say that's displaying, you're not pointing it at someone, you're not, you know, you're actually disarming it basically. But then someone else might argue, well, okay, what, but like what if he turns around and shows like, see this gun, you know, like watch out what I'm going to do with you. Okay. Does that get back into threatening? Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. And then what she said versus what he said, it's, it it gets complicated.
0: (laughs) It sure does. All right. So to sum up HB 195 would, Change the reckless conduct law to protect gun owners who, quote-unquote, display a firearm. Supporters argue this will protect gun owners exercising their Second Amendment rights, but opponents argue it will empower gun owners to intimidate or terrorize other people. Anna, if our listeners have an opinion on this bill, what should they do?
1: Okay, the full House of Representatives will vote on HB 195 when they next meet, which is April 7th, 8th, and 9th. If you have an opinion, contact your state representatives and share your views. You can find your elected officials on the Citizens Count website by going to our navigation bar. This is citizenscount.org and click on Elected Officials.
0: And also worth noting, the House of Representatives is voting on other firearm-related bills that same day. So, for example, there's a constitutional amendment banning gun restrictions, just outright, Uh, CACR-8 uh and a bill to prohibit local or school gun bans, that's HB 307. We have a topic page all about gun laws on the Citizens Count website if you want to learn more.
1: That's going to be a marathon, three days of voting, by the way. Usually the House of Representatives meets almost every week throughout the beginning of the year, but thanks to good old Corona V, they're instead yeah. opting for this Votapalooza at the Bedford Sportsplex. Mm. And I'm thinking back to the last time they met in February when... uh some There was that controversial vote, and some people were locked in, some people were locked out. Uh, I mean, hopefully things aren't quite as spicy this time because they have a lot of bills to get through.
0: Yeah, and hey, they're on a football field. Maybe we just need some referees to be on the sidelines ready to take control. <laughs> uh, all right, I think it's that time. It's our segment only in New Hampshire. And Anna, what do you have for us this week?
1: All right, this one is near and dear to my super nerdy heart because both my mother and my sister are librarians. So, New Hampshire, first state library in the country, established in 1717. But I think even more interesting than that, were the home to the first taxpayer-funded library. So, that was founded in Peterborough in 1833. It was led by a Unitarian minister, Reverend Abiel Abbott, and its original collection was only about 100 books, which was accessible in the general store, which was also the post office. <laughs> so you could, you know, pick up your your flower, your whodunit mystery, since you're into true crime like me, and then, uh, you know, send a letter to your your pen pal lover from Massachusetts. Ooh, I don't know about that. If you're a Granite Stater, hopefully you don't have a pen pal <laughs> lover in Massachusetts yeah so, so, yeah, like I you know libraries, I think it's pe- I've heard the argument, you know, like how would people react today if we proposed public libraries and they weren't a thing before? You know, like right. is this something that we would support with taxpayer dollars? And obviously, uh, I have to admit open bias here because <laughs> I have two family members who are librarians. That was uh, shelving books was my first high school job. But I think when we talk about the foundation of democracy, we talk about public education. The library is kind of that public education for adults. And oh my gosh, the other thing we need to remember, not everyone has internet access or desktops or laptop computers or printers in 2020. How could you function without that? I remember having really interesting conversation with my mom about, you know, okay, so 2020 you can't really do it in the beginning when they shut everything down, you know, like let's say you need to file unemployment or something like you're stuck on the phone for hours on end or, you know, you're trying on the Internet and the library was closed for a little while. And it's that concern that like people people need that access to just function. So I think about that sometimes. I wonder, like, is there still that support? Like it's such a part of just government everywhere, you know, that it doesn't really come up. But you just got to give a shout out to our libraries and shout out to New Hampshire for Being the first one to do it in the U.S.
0: That's right. That's amazing. I had no idea that that was the case. But it's one more more reason to be a proud Granite Stater, everybody. And that about wraps it up for our episode today. You can find more information and episodes at citizenscount.org. We'd like to thank Franklin Pierce University for producing and the Granite State News Collaborative for hosting. Our theme music is composed by Mike Dunbar. Hey, that's me. Lastly, we thank you for giving us a listen and thinking about how you can be a part of what makes New Hampshire by the people for the people.